John chapter 6. So we continue our study through the Gospel of John. You can find that on page 1055 if you're using a pew Bible. Page 1055, John chapter 6, page 1055. Today we're going to study the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. So let me read John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He said this, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew himself again to a mountain by himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Here we are. We are a multitude. We need you to feed us. I thank you, Lord, that you know every need represented here, that you know where we are. You know whether we need encouragement or help or wisdom or instruction or or rebuke or forgiveness. Lord, we thank you that you see our needs. And, Father, we pray that you would provide miraculously for us again today. And, Lord, I, I have only to offer you a five loaf, two fish sermon, but I do pray, Lord, that you would feed your people somehow through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle story to occur in all four of the New Testament Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this miracle, which probably means it's, it's a significant miracle in some ways a bit of a defining moment, a signature piece for Jesus in in his miraculous career. Um, And it raises the question, what are we supposed to do with this story? Why is it so important? How do we handle this miracle story? We could probably even ask more broadly, what do we do when we read about miracles in the Gospels? There's a lot of miracles that take place in the Gospels. What are we supposed to do with them? How are we supposed to handle them and make use of them? 
And, and so I'd like to suggest this morning what you might uh, call a, a kind of a reading strategy for gospel, for gospel miracles. When you're reading through the Gospels and you come to, to these miracle stories, what should you do with them? And, and here's the reading strategy I'd like to propose. It's pretty simple. Keep your eye on Jesus. It's kind of like when you teach a little kid to hit a baseball. What do you tell them? You know, keep your eye on the ball. And it's similar in the Gospels when you come to miracles. It's keep your eye on Jesus. Because the miracle stories in the Gospels have as their primary purpose to reveal to us who Jesus is, to help us understand him, to, to get a better grasp of his identity and his power. The miracles are there to buttress and give evidence to his words. So, so it's all about focusing us on Jesus. So whenever you read the miracle stories, the, the, the primary question you need to be asking, among other things, is what does this show me about Jesus? So let us look at the feeding of the 5,000 and just try to keep our eye on Jesus. And when you do that, when you read the story this way, you realize the story uh, moves and, and pivots based upon some different actions that Jesus takes in the story. I'd like to suggest there are three major movements to the story, and in each of the movements, Jesus does a different thing, and that kind of defines the action of, of the story. So there's kind of three movements or three panels to this story. And, and in the first one, the first one is this. You might think, well, G, what does Jesus do? He feeds the multitude. No, actually, that actually comes later. The first thing he does is that he tests his disciples. Don't miss that. So let's look at the story. The first action of Jesus is testing. And actually, before we even get to the testing, let's look at the background. Verse 1, it says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. So if you can imagine, imagine a map up here of the land of Israel with the Mediterranean Sea over here, and here's the coastline. And then in Israel, you can imagine the Jordan River running north-south through the land, and at the south end is the Dead Sea where the Jordan River empties. But feeding the Jordan River is the Sea of Galilee. And if you can kind of zoom in on the Sea of Galilee, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee is where most of the Jewish settlements and towns were towns like Capernaum and, and other uh, areas like that. And so when it says that they crossed over, it, it typically is from the perspective of where the Jewish population was. So they'd be going over to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, perhaps the northeastern side where the, a region that's known today as the Golan Heights, a very mountainous area, because it talks about going up into the mountains. So maybe it was that sort of wilderness area, the Golan Heights region today that Jesus goes. And, and he's going there, and he's followed, he's shadowed by this massive crowd. Verse 2, a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs and miraculous, uh, miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. So, so, so the various miracles Jesus has been doing ha- have had a kind of cumulative effect of, of building up a following. We know from the other three Gospels that Right before the feeding of the 5,000 miracle, Jesus had sent out his 12 disciples on a missionary tour to preach and do miracles. So, so, so that's already been going on. Um, so now those disciples are coming back, and probably each of them is bringing a crowd. So, so there's this kind of coalescing of all these miracles and all this teaching and all this ministry. And now Jesus sails across the lake, and he's followed by this entourage this enormous herd of people, perhaps sailing, some walking, uh, we're told down in verse 10 that there were 5,000 men. The other Gospels remind us that there were women and children there too. So 
in addition to this 5,000 kind of head of households, 5,000 men, you probably have women and children. So this could have been a crowd, without stretching it, of 10,000, 15,000. I mean, it's not outside of possibility that this is a crowd of 20,000 people with all the, the folks who've come along on this journey. You know, trying to visualize 20,000. How many people can you fit in Fenway? You know, was that like 33, 35-ish, something like that, when Fenway's full? So, you know, two-thirds of Fenway, maybe, like half of Fenway. Wow, that's a lot of people. This huge crowd is following Jesus. So Jesus goes up on a mountainside, verse 3. He sat down with his disciples. Verse 4, the Jewish Passover feast was near. Why is that there? Why does it mention the Jewish Passover feast? What does that matter? Hmm. Let's put that one away for a minute. All right, so let's go to verse 5. Here's the first act of Jesus. He tests his disciples. It says in verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So he goes to Philip, hey, Philip, a lot of people here, people are hungry, where should we get some food for them? you have any ideas? Uh, you know, he asked Philip, and some have suggested that, you know, Philip, we're told in chapter 1 of John, grew up in Bethsaida, which was a city on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So it could have been like, hey, Philip, this is where you grew up, man. It's your hometown. Good place to get food for like 15,000 people. Any place we go buy that, you know, 24-hour store? Like, what, where should we go? And I love it. He says, he only asked him this to test him because Jesus already knew what he intended to do. He was testing him. Isn't that interesting? Jesus tested his disciples. Jesus tests the disciples. You know, God tests us. Sometimes we don't remember that. We, we, we forget, but God tests us. God tested Adam in the Garden of Eden. He gave him a test not to eat from the, the forbidden fruit. God tested Abraham. He said, go and sacrifice your son Isaac, knowing full well that he would not let Abraham carry through with it, but he didn't tell Abraham that because it was a test. God, in a sense, tested Job. There was a question of Job's integrity. And so God gave a little leash to Satan to let Satan go and do some nasty stuff on Job to see how Job would stand up to the test to prove his character. Uh, th there's an interesting passage in Deuteronomy chapter 13 where Moses is talking about false prophets arising in Israel. He says, if, you know, if a man comes along and he makes prophecies and the prophecies come true, so he seems like a legit prophet, but then the man says, let us go worship other gods, Moses says, you shall not go after him. And then you get this very interesting line. The Lord has sent the false prophet among you to test you. So, you know, God, God tests. Isn't that interesting? God does not tempt us. That is the speciality of Satan. Satan is good at alluring and trying to entice people to sin against God. God doesn't tempt, but he does test. Perhaps a fine point and yet an important one to keep in mind. Uh, we are not allowed to put God to the test, but God does put us to the test. God disciplines his sons and God tests his people from time to time. 
You know, you think about uh, our identity as Christians. The Bible does use the word Christian, but there's a, in a far more common word in the Gospels. We're called disciples, right? You think about what's a disciple? A disciple is a learner. A disciple is a, a, a person who's trying to be like someone else. They're, they're studying, and, and they're trying to mimic in them. You know, a disciple, they're not the Jedi Knight. They're the Jedi Padawan. They're, they're learning and, and seeking to imitate the, the other they're not the mentor-er, they're the mentor e. A disciple is a student. Students take tests. Students get examined. Students are pushed so that they might grow in, in their learning. And so we're, we're put to the test in that way. Now, that, that's significant, you know, because, again, I often think we don't see God that way. When difficult times come into our lives and we go through periods of of testing and trials. Sometimes the, the only, and I, I hear Christians talk this way, sometimes the only theological category we have for trials is spiritual warfare from the devil. And that's a real theological category. And people say, you know, oh, Satan's attacking me. Things, bad things are happening in my life. I'm, in, I'm under spiritual attack. Satan's after me. Got to get the demons away, you know. And, and it's true, Satan is real, and there is spiritual warfare. But, you know, there's another major category, which is, God tests us. And in some mysterious way, those two can fit together, a la the story of Job. Right? You, you see both kinds of things happening. But, but you know, bef- before we freak out and say God has abandoned me, what if in those trials God is testing us? Because if we're disciples, if we're students, there are tests. Does anyone here feel like it's exam week? You're like, how about exam year? All right, I've been having, I have exam life, okay? I feel like I've been tested and, okay, Lord, I think I've passed the test. Am I passed? Is there another page to this test? How long is this test? Maybe some of you are going through trials. It's an ongoing test. Some tests God give us last our whole lives. There, there are all kinds of trials, but the Lord tests his people. It's part of his love for us because he's trying to shape us into the image of Jesus. Um, some of you know uh, a, a fellow in our church, a member of our church. His name is Matt Dorn. Any of you know Matt? Uh, he's been an elder in the church. He's just a great guy. And um, he is in a ministry with the Navigators, which is a parachurch ministry. And it, the Navigators are all about discipleship. How do you help people grow as Christians? And I'll tell you what, you cut Matt anywhere and he bleeds discipleship. Like, this is his burning passion to help people move forward in their Christian life, to not just sit in a pew, but really become fruitful, growing Christians who are growing in Christ and obeying and, and being used for Him. That, that's what Matt does. He's all about that. And it's interesting, you talk to Matt about, okay, how do you make disciples? And he'll talk to you about the importance of the Word of God being central. He'll talk to you about prayer and the importance of a local church. But, but you know, Matt often brings this up, and this is important. He says, you know, that there is one discipleship tool that is so critical that the church actually can't program, program suffering. He says, you know, this is one of the important things God uses to disciple us. And, and we, you know, we're all about no suffering, you know. It's like a headache, Advil liquid gels, make it stop. But, but you know, we forget this is one of God's big tools is suffering to, to, to test us and purify us so that we might be more like him. So there's tests in the Christian life. I thought it was going to get easier when I became a Christian. 
In some ways, it's more wonderfully more blessed. But in other ways, it's harder because God loves us and He's purifying us and there's tests as part of our discipleship. Okay, so let's get back to the text here. What's the test here? Let's look at this test. Enough on tests in general. Let's look at their test. And I call this test Mission Impossible. You know, your mission, should you choose to accept it, feed 5,000 people. (laughs) This message will self-destruct. Will you take this test? It's a test in which the disciples are challenged to do something that there is no way they can do. They do not have the resources. They do not have the wherewithal. This is beyond them. It's an impossible mission. Jesus says, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? You get Philip, verse 7. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not be enough bread for each one to have a bite. So Philip, he's the numbers guy. Philip's like, what? Buy? Buy? Okay, let's hypothesize eight months' wages. We'll just take that as a figure. Figure 5,000 people or maybe 12,000. Okay, it's conservative. It's probably more than that. It's okay. Price of bread per person is this. Divide by the cosine of X. Can't feed them. Not enough. Even if we had eight months' wages, we couldn't even give everyone a little bite of bread. Look, I got the spreadsheet. It's right here. I've done the math. I've run the numbers. And you know, for a lot of us, that, that's, that's what it comes down to, is just the numbers. That's the bottom line is the bottom line. And if, if the numbers don't add up, well, God can't do it. Because numbers are, are, are king. Numbers speak. Eight months' wages wouldn't buy that much food. Then there's Andrew. He, he steps up to the test. He's going to try this test. Verse 8, another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? So Andrew, he, he's, he's the get-her-done guy. I'm sick of talking. Everyone's always talking. Let's just do something. You know, come on, there's a problem here. Let's just roll up our sleeves and get it done. All right, what do we got? What do we got? All right, yeah, you, you know, little kid with the Hunger Games lunchbox. Okay, come over here. Let's see, what do we got in here? Okay, we got five barley biscuits, and we got two sardines. Yeah, that's not going to work. Not enough. Sorry, Jesus. Did my best, just dealt with what we got, and we don't have it. This is not going to obviously go very far. These guys, you know, I I hate to say it, but Philip and Andrew, you read their responses. Man, is that like looking in a mirror or what? (laughs) These tough situations come along, challenges come along, and and we instantly start looking to our resources. I, I can do this. I can figure this out. I can make sense of this. We can crunch the numbers. You know, trials come into our lives difficult situations, and what do we do? It's like, okay, make some calls, phone a friend, go online, surf the net, go to WebMD, call my doctor, call my lawyer, call my therapist, call my pastor, going to get some advice, going to make a game plan, going to make a flow chart, got an order of attack. You know, and and we just go at problems like that with, with all of our resources and our energy. I think there's a particular proclivity to that in, in this kind of region. I even think about our church and the makeup of our church. And, you know, there's a lot of folks in our church, I probably might put myself in this category, who are kind of type A, overachiever, successful, well-educated people who, who are used to 
handling life. And, you know, some of us are chilled out, laid back. But, you know, there's, there's this good drivenness in our church of people like that. And so when problems come along, our first thought is, you know, roll up the sleeves, let's figure this out and do it, and we can do it. Because we're smart, well-educated, well-resourced, we have background, we're successful, whatever it is that we perceive we can do. But what if we, what if we don't have what it takes? Could it be that sometimes God puts us in situations where there isn't something we can do? So these guys take this test. Test administered. Test failed. F. That's what they get. Not pass. They don't pass the test. Why don't they pass the test? What is it that they failed to do? That's the important question. In what sense have they failed this test? And to answer that, I'd like to move on to the second action of Jesus in verses 10 to 13. So Jesus tests his disciples, and then the second action of Jesus is that he feeds the multitude. There's the great miracle. So that's sort of the next major movement. And by the way, that's kind of typical of miracle stories in the Bible. There's a problem presented, and then Jesus in some way solves the problem. So we keep our eye on Jesus, and we see that he tests his disciples, and then he does the miracle. So Jesus tests the disciples, then he feeds the multitude. So look at verses 10 to 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So Jesus says, Okay, okay, guys, my turn. Have everyone sit down. 5,000 people on the grass spread out. Jesus takes the loaves. He gives thanks. Perhaps he uses the traditional Jewish prayer of thanksgiving that is, is commonly prayed over the bread. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu. Melech olam hamotzi lechemin haaretz. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And then he starts to distribute the bread and the fish. And it keeps coming and coming. And it keeps coming and coming. And where is it coming from? What did that look like? I'm always curious about things like that. Like, what? What was that like? Was it like when the magician's up there and a dove and then another dove and then another dove? Except it's like 10,000 doves. Like, where, where is all of this coming from? I don't know. But he distributes his food. The important thing in verses 10 to 13 that I want you to focus on that I think is the kind of the driving emphasis of the passage, in contrast to verses 7 and 9, is the emphasis on the overabundant provision. So verses 7 to 9 are all about the, the complete lack of resources of the disciples. Look, we don't have the money. That would take too much money. We only have five small barley loaves and two small fish. And by the way, even the barley loaves, you know, this is a little bit lost in translation to us, but I was doing some research and I stumbled across this thing. Apparently, barley loaves in that day, the only, the only thing you fed barley to were animals and poor people. That's who ate barley. If you couldn't afford wheat, you had to eat barley, and it was like, ew, barley. 
you know, but if you had enough money, you would eat wheat. So, so even the barley loaves is kind of like, ew, why are you eating that? that that's kind of poor food. So, so even that the barley loaves, it was miserable. So there's an emphasis in verses 7 to 9 on the gross lack of resources. And then in verses 10 to 13, the emphasis is on the overabundant provision. You know, there's the 5,000 people in verse 10. Then in verse 11, he gave thanks, he distributed it to those who were seating, and they had as what? As much as they wanted. Everybody had all they wanted. You can just imagine the disciples, they're, they're food pushers. Come on, have a little bit more. Oh, I'm fine. You can have a little more. Okay, a little bit more. Until everybody's had everything they wanted, no one could eat another bite. Verse 12, when they had all had enough to eat. And then gather the pieces left over and 12 baskets. So, so the emphasis is on everybody being full with tons left over. And of, of course, you know, the, the 12 baskets, that's just a beautiful little touch at the end of this. If I was filming this as a movie, you know, what, what I would have is I would have the 12 disciples lined up and I would have Jesus coming with a basket, handing it to the first disciple. And then second disciple. <laughs> third disciple. <laughs> you know, like, get it? <laughs> There's 12. Look, look at how much is left over. The overabundant provision. So Jesus reveals himself as the great supplier over and above and beyond all we can ask or imagine. That's who Jesus is. He provides abundantly. You know, this is a, a funny test, isn't it? Thinking, going back to that question, in what sense did they fail the test? So, so I want to put these two ideas together that he tested them, then he provided. And and we said that those disciples failed the test. In what sense? Did they fail the test because they couldn't cough up enough money or food? Did they fail because they didn't have the resources? Or was it a failed test because they were looking at their own resources? I wonder if that's the point of failure. It's not that they couldn't come up with it, but it's that they thought they could. Instead of saying, uh, we can't do that, but Jesus, you can, right? It's a funny kind of test, this test, because normally when you take a test, the point of the test is to show what you know or what you can do. I don't know if there's any kids here. You guys have to take MCAS tests in school. You know, who takes MCAS? Yeah. Who loves taking MCAS? You love taking MCAS? Okay, some honesty. That's good. Yeah, you know, you don't, you don't want likes to take tests. And the whole point of the MCAS is, are you learning stuff in school? Are you learning what you're supposed to be learning? If you take your driver's test or your Series 7 or your boards or, or the bar, or if you take your master electrician or master plumber, you know, whatever you're taking, these tests, it's to show that you have competence and uh, knowledge, information, that you've been well-trained, that you're ready to go out and handle it yourself. But this is a weird test where to pass the test... You have to show that you don't have it, but that God does. So it's a weird test where the guy giving the test is trying to show you that he's competent, not that you're competent. Isn't it strange? The point of the test is to bring us to a realization of our inadequacy so that we might keep our eye on Jesus and see him as the one who provides over and abundantly all we need. It's just so weird. These disciples fail. It's like, wouldn't they know after all this time with Jesus to just kind of look to him? Wouldn't they know that? 
How could it be that people who say they follow Jesus wouldn't look straight to Jesus when they have a problem? I just can't imagine how that would ever happen. Oh, yeah, I do it all the time. But besides that, you know, we, we, we do this. Problems come along, and we instantly go in to fix it, solve the problem mode. And, and we only go to prayer for God, to God, if it's like super bad and the other things didn't work. And it's only rarely do we ever fast because, you know, that, that's like for super, super extreme situations. Why isn't it the opposite? Why isn't it when the, the bad news comes or the difficulty happens or the problem with the kid erupts or whatever, why isn't the first thing we do is go straight to prayer? Seek the Lord. Fast and pray, you know. And then... Call the doctor, call the lawyer, go on the internet. You've got to do that stuff too. I, I, I don't want to uh, give you the, mis- the impression here that I'm arguing for a kind of pious passivity where we just sit back and say, look, I'm so spiritual, I'm not going to do anything. You know, God, God uses our efforts. I mean, Jesus used the five loaves and two fish. He used what they had. But the point is they were giving it to Him. And so when we start dealing with trials by looking to the Lord Jesus as the great provider, the God-man who provides all that we need, who himself is life. When we look to Jesus above all else, it just reorients everything. So that way, if, if I do happen to take the five loaves, two fish chemo, and it actually helps me, I'm going to know that it was the Lord who's healing me, that it's the Lord who's my strength, that the Lord is my life. Because I've been seeking him. So here's Jesus. He is the great provider. That's what he reveals about himself. He's the one who has above and beyond all that we need. And, and just to drive that home, I just want to point out two quick things here. Then we'll move to the third action of Jesus. But just to drive that home, it, it, as you look at this story, it's organized in such a way that it should also have kind of Old Testament echoes of other great moments of provision in Israel's history. In other words, the story is framed in such a way that that it's also supposed to highlight Jesus as the great provider by looking at other stories of God's provision from the Old Testament. So let me just kind of do a pop quiz here. Can you think of the other two Old Testament characters or heroes, they're prophets actually, uh, who, who also did great provisions like this? Can anyone think of them? Kind of weird. Just shout it out. What's that? Elisha. And who was the other one? Moses. That's right. Elisha and Moses. Let's look at Elisha first. Check this out. Put a bookmark here in John. Go back to 2 Kings chapter 4, page 362. There's Elijah and Elisha. I don't know why Elijah had to pick a guy whose name was almost identical to his so that millennia of Bible readers would be confused. 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha, the prophet, page 362. Elisha does a miracle. And it's just this little miracle. It's chapter 4, verse 42. A man came from Baal, Shalashah, 2 Kings 4, 42. A man came from Baal, Shalashah, bringing the man of God, that is bringing Elijah, Elisha, <laughs> 20 loaves of barley bread. Bake from the first ripe grain along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. Feed the people. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. This won't feed them. 
But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. Then he said it before them, they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. So you have a feeding of a crowd that's too many for the loaves. You have barley bread. You have some left over. You even have, you don't get this unless you, you see the Greek of it, but in verse 43 where it says the servant asked, the Greek word that's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament for servant, kind of a, a little less common word, is the same Greek word that's used for the boy who brings the barley loaves in John 6. So there's all these just kind of cool little echo reverberation things from Second Kings coming forward. And here's Jesus, who had even less to work with and more to feed. He's the superior provider. And then, of course, the guy said Moses too, right? Moses, Moses, obviously. He's in the wilderness. He's on a mountain. There's the host of Israel. They're hungry. And so just as Moses provided manna, and just as Moses provided quail, bread and meat, so Jesus here provides, in a sense, kind of bread and meat, and he provides it miraculously. And so Jesus is identifying himself as the true provider. He's the true Moses, the true shepherd. He's the Messiah. He is the one that Israel has been waiting for. He is the Son of God. And he reveals all that through his miracle. So Jesus tests the disciples, then he feeds the multitude, and in essence, he reveals his identity to the multitude as the great provider and the Savior for whom Israel was waiting. And notice, this is not lost on the crowd. The crowd actually figures this out. Verse 14, going back to John 6, verse 14, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And what does that mean, the prophet? What are they talking about? Well, in Deuteronomy, you don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 18, Moses prophesied that God would raise up a prophet like him. And so by the time we get to the time of Jesus, as the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come, one of the figures that they were waiting for was the prophet like Moses. And whether he was the Messiah himself or another figure with the Messiah, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, you get into eschatology, you get all kinds of viewpoints. Well, that's how it was then too, all kinds of different views on eschatology. But they believed that, that this prophet like Moses would come. So they're in the wilderness and, and they, they're figuring it out. They're like, oh, we're in the wilderness. There's a guy in a mountain. He's feeding us miraculously this is like manna. This is a miracle. This is the prophet like Moses. Wow. And they, they put it all together. And so they're right. They're actually right about that. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. But they're wrong because they don't understand why he really came. Look at verse 15, the final verse of John 6, this story. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus tests the disciples. He provides for the crowds. And then his last action, he hides from the crowds. And this is a typical miracle, miracle story. Problem, miracle, response. And here's the response. The crowd say, he's the prophet. Let's make him king. And Jesus hides from that. 
which I think is a remarkable thing. It's as if Jesus has passed another test right before our eyes to say no to 5,000, 10,000 people saying we want you to be king. I don't know. If 10,000 people suddenly want to make you king or queen, I mean, eh, that'd be pretty tempting. Jesus, he's already faced this temptation. The devil offered him the whole world. If he'd bow down and worship him, he said no. Jesus said no to this. That was not his mission. His mission was not to come and be a political savior. His mission was not even to come and give bread to hungry people. Even though giving bread to hungry people is a good thing. And even though as Christians we should care about what's going on politically in our world. And and so as Christians those things should matter to us. But let's be clear, that wasn't Jesus' primary mission to feed the hungry or to solve the politics. What was his primary mission? Ah, verse 4. Let's go get verse 4 off the shelf. The Jewish Passover feast was near. Why is the Jewish Passover feast mentioned? Could it be that it's a reminder that Jesus came to be the Passover lamb, to be the lamb of God as he said, or as John said, who takes away the sin of the world. That Jesus' primary mission was to take away sin by dying on the cross. That's why he came. You know, it's really interesting. The Jewish Passover feast is mentioned three times in the Gospel of John. The first time is in chapter 2, where Jesus is in the temple and he says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they all think he's out of his mind. But he's talking about himself. Kill me and I'll rise again in three days, which happens. The third time that the Passover feast is mentioned is when Jesus actually does die as the sacrificial lamb during Passover. The second time is right here in John 6 where it's a reminder that the mission of Jesus was to die for our sins. See, Jesus loved us enough that he came to meet our greatest need. Our greatest need is not a better political leader. Our greatest need is not even food, clothing, and shelter, and health, and home, although those are really important and God cares about everything in our lives, but that wasn't our greatest need. My greatest need and your greatest need is to have our sins forgiven, to be right with God, to have my sins wiped away so that I can be in a right relationship with God, and only Christ can do that. You see, being right with God, that's called mission impossible. You don't have the resources. We think we do. We're like, you know, yeah, I'm a, I need to straighten up my life. I'm going to get back to church. You know, I'm going to get sober. I'm going to get clean. I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to change things. I'm going to get spiritual. I'm going to try to do things differently. And, you know, it's good to try to improve our lives. That's not a bad thing. But, but we think that that's what's going to make us right with God, that somehow we can make up for things or we can make ourselves good enough. But, you know, even the most moral, spiritual person is still a kind of five loaf, two sardine sinner. Like, that's all we got. Like, that's going to meet the need. And yet God's demands of holiness upon us are vast. And so rather than looking to ourselves and our own morality and our own spirituality and our own um, religiosity, God has provided the bread from heaven. Jesus Christ in His death on the cross is God's provision 
for our sins and for the sins of the world. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, listen to the scope of that. It's like feeding the 5,000. God has enough. And so the call is to look to Jesus and be saved. Put your faith in Christ. Don't put it in yourself. You say, I don't know if God could forgive me. I, I got... I got a lot of issues in my past. I got a lot of sin. I got a lot of things I'm ashamed of. I got issues. I don't have issues. I got a whole subscription. <laughs> it just goes on and on in my life. But I want to tell you there is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. And the grace of Christ is so overabundant, it's like 12 baskets full. And after he's saved you, he can save anyone who comes to him. And after that, there's still going to be grace left over for a feast in heaven. There's so much left over. And so look to Christ. Lay down your efforts to save yourself or forgive yourself or make yourself right and cling to the Savior. Look to Jesus who came to provide for our deepest need salvation and forgiveness and a right standing with God. My friends, Jesus came to save sinners like us And he's got plenty of grace to go around. And so let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just want to praise you. Just want to keep our eyes on you. I I want to praise you that you love us so much that you do test us to strengthen us. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who is in the fiery trial of testing, that they would rest in you, that they would know that you love them, that, Lord, you would give them strength to let go of their own resources and turn to you in prayer. I pray, Lord, that we as a church would be a loving body of fellow testees and that we would come around each other when one of us is in testing and just pray each other through the tests. Lord, help us to love each other. And God, give us strength to put our trust in you. Lord, I do pray and praise you that you're the provider. And I thank you, Lord, that you have everything that we need. And I pray that we would look to you first and foremost. And thank you, Jesus, that you said no to the world's agenda so that you could say yes to the Father's agenda. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't meet a lesser need like politics or like food, but you came to meet our greatest need, forgiveness. And Lord, I just pray that everyone here would put all of their hope in the cross and not in themselves. And may we find our strength in you, Jesus. Thank you that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So, Lord, we put our trust in you today. Thank you for your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.